Hello, 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 and welcome to episode four of 52 Week Film Project. Whoa, hello, Jake. Whoa. Hello, mate. How you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. This week has been a bit sad because um, Jake left university. I um, finally packed up and moved up out of Birmingham back gone. down south. And I'm still I'm still there technically, but I've come down for the day to Jake's house to record. You have. It's, it's very exciting. An exciting day out. Nice to, nice to see you down in Surrey. I know. It's nice. It's nice. Uh, so yeah, we are now talking about Hereditary. Um, spoiler on this I am terrible at scary movies you are really bad yeah, so, scary I, so there's not a lot of like I've got I've got a couple of scary movies that I've watched in my time but mainly it's not my thing I'm do you have any favourites um, I liked Insidious mainly because of Darth Maul <laughs> why Why? Do, well, I haven't seen Insidious um, there's a the devil like figure looks exactly like Darth Maul and it makes oh, me oh really yeah and it's a scary film which is kind of ruined by the fact that Darth Maul just turns up halfway through yeah. as the main bad guy but it's a it's a good film because they've made I, like they've made like how many of them have they three made? Now. Yeah, there's three yeah. or four, and there's four coming. I've never watched it. I, I I'd like to say that I'm more of a horror fan than you. Yep. But still, like the the kind of the classic like modern day franchise horror films like Paranormal Activity, like Insidious. Uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, the Purge. Yeah. You know, like those series where they hit it really on the head in the first film and then they drag it out. It's yeah, a shame like they the do Conjuring as well, I guess. And they've well, done the like Conjuring. that Annabelle spin-off and stuff. Is the that Conjuring? The there's now like three or four lined up spin-offs, and they've for got those one, films, and which they, is crazy. They've got one called The Nun coming out, right? Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I just think they seem a bit generic. Yeah, and when, I always feel like with a horror film, whenever it's like the something, it's always. Been, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, but we've been fairly blessed with like good modern horrors in the last year or so because Get Out, like if you you, you can call it a black comedy, but it's also it is it is a horror. Film. It is a horror film, yeah. Um, that came out, what was that, 2017? Because it was in the Oscars this last season. It was season, in the wasn't Oscars, it? yeah. It was that that was the film that got all the problems with the Golden Globes where they nominated it as best comedy. Oh, just that so is it could just, win. Yeah. And then, and, and, and then everyone had a problem with it. But no, yeah, it so that, that came out. The Babadook, um, that came out a couple of years ago and that was really well received. I haven't watched that, but I've been told it's really great. I've been I've also been told it's, it's fantastic. Two production companies that seem to be really big in doing like quality modern day horror are Blumhouse Productions, mm -hmm. who I think did get out. And A24, which is the company that have just done Hereditary, they did The Witch. I don't know if you watched that. Yeah, I've that I've was heard of really, Witch. really yeah. good. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, I suppose like I'm trying to think of the last horror film that I watched in a cinema. I watched The Strangers Pray at Night back in like April, and it was oh, I was fucking shit. Did you? Like, it was what, so bad. What was what was bad about it? It, it? it is just a really archetypal like three weirdos stalking a family in a trailer park. Nothing particularly impressive about it stylistically. No exciting twist. It was just quite boring. Fair enough. Um, and it kind of just resorted in the last like half an hour to becoming so graphic that it kind of got the shocks from the gore rather than anything else. That's a shame. Which is, I, th I think, the state of horror for the last like five or six years. Yeah, well, when I think of horror films, I go back to one of my favourite films, which is The Shining. And I always want horror films to kind of do that sort of psychological tension. Yeah. Um, and I think Hereditary gets quite near to it um, in a lot of ways. It really does, that psycho horror style. Like, it's is it all in their head? Is it like, you know, it's playing tricks? on you with the cameras it's not just here's a serial killer stalking a family 
and there's or, lots of jump jump scares. Or yeah, here's a ghost slamming doors and turning off lights in a house, and the mm-hmm. family's got to deal with it. Like they, yeah, I I will always lean towards psychological horrors, maybe towards even like psychological thrillers, like Seven, things like that. Yeah, like I, I always find that those films have more impact on me. They're longer I, lasting. When you watch a scary do. film, like scary film that's a jump scare, it's in slot. Like, yeah, it's a scary film. You have pro- you have sort of problems with the fact that you'll come out of the scary cinema scared, but then the next day you won't see it. Whereas films like like The Shining and like Women in Black was, was that for me as well. I haven't seen that. I've seen it. I've seen the play in London. I thought it was terrifying. Yeah, and but that sticks with me much longer than other recent horror films. Yeah, okay, definitely. I yeah. mean, yeah, you're definitely right. Like when it comes to like jump scares, they wash out quite quickly. They're yeah. the kind of thing that will grab you in the moment, but within a few hours, you won't be thinking about it. Like, I mean, we watched um, with our mates a couple of weeks ago. We watched It, didn't we? Yes. The, um, the Stephen King's It, but the the new one with Bill Skarsgård playing Pennywise the Clown. And I, it was the second time I've seen it. I thought it was brilliant. But I was, it is just shit tons of jump scares, none of them particularly terrifying. And they built up these amazing characters in the kids. It was really, really well developed. It was a really sweet story, but it didn't, you know, I know it's an original novel, obviously, but it didn't kind of like really drive it in for me and really kind of like become so twisted that I found it unbearable. Do you think some of that is Bill Skarsgård compared to Tim Curry in the TV film? Oh, what, you mean in the original? Yes. It, yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think something that was quite psychologically disturbing, we're going to see how many times we can say psychological in the podcast. Yeah. It's so psychologically disturbing. Said by a psychology student. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I think that the reason the original it character you're right by tim curry playing pennywise i think it will always be more haunting than kind of like the fresh take that bill skarsgård did because it had like this um pedophilic nature to it it was like the clown was preying on the kids but had kind of like a sexual desire yeah it was like a sexual predator kind of theme and bill skarsgård naturally because it's such a, a a popular kind of portrayal he wanted to do something different and he went kind of more down the silly childish clown route childish psychopath um, clown yeah. yeah like forgotten childhood kind of route and yeah i think it was i think it's cool but it didn't it didn't like mm. i it washed out for me quite quickly the impact yeah i would agree but i, I mean, always get drawn to more family things but which is why it's quite exciting to do hereditary um we watched um ari aster who's the director um the two previous short films that he's done. Yeah. Um, the Strange Thing About the Johnsons and Mes- Munchen- Munchausen? Munchausen. Munchausen. So these are these are two short films that have been like critically acclaimed by Ari Aster um, before Hereditary, which is his like feature-length directorial debut. And he's only 31. Mm. And The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which is slightly longer, it's about a 29-minute long video, which we literally just watched about an hour ago, like stupidly decided to watch it while we were eating lunch, which was a really bad choice because it's an incredibly disturbing, very uncomfortable short story. It's quite hard to take anything down, Um, really. But it's like, yeah. But he made that in 2011, which means he made it when he was about 24, which was all the more impressive watching it because it is... It's a fully realised film. It's it's dark. Yeah. It's so dark. we, We were talking about whether we should kind of we wanted to talk about Ari Aster and his his path to making Hereditary on this podcast, but we didn't... When we watched both of these short stories over the last day or two, I think we've kind of come to the conclusion that I don't really want to like explain them no. to people that might be listening because they're not very long to watch. You can find both of them on YouTube. 
and they are like they're very gripping and to to explain the whole story or kind of spoil them would 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 really ruin it and because um, they're so short it, you can you can spoil it yeah. very quickly and I, I definitely think we're recording this three days after hereditary came out and i think that what's going to happen now is because it's been critically applauded and it's also kind of divided some fans of horror in general i think that these short films will now be brought up a bit more and they'll be revisited and especially I think, in the next week yeah yeah i think a lot of people that were really really turned on to this hereditary film will if they didn't know already will now hear about his previous short outings and go and watch them yeah but kind of the rough outline of strange thing about the johnsons is it's a short story about again a family dynamic not dissimilar to what he does in hereditary um and it's essentially about the strange relationship between a son and the father and it's kind of a, a like a without giving too much it's kind of a molestation kind of plot like a sexual abuse plot um but not quite in the way you would expect mm. um it's, it's a really weird twist very unique even more uncomfortable very unique i dare i say very black mirror i don't know if that's kind of doing it a bit of a disservice but it is that kind of unsettling uncomfortable thing happening to someone that's in a reality not far from your own yeah um and more, more or less the same thing with the Munchausen one. It's only, it's like 15 minutes, that one, isn't That's it? That's much shorter. It's got no dialogue attached to it as well. It's, it's more done by the soundtrack. Um, but again, it's going through family dynamics and with a mother and son. And the, the son's going, moving to college, isn't he? Yeah. And the mum doesn't want him to leave. Very weird watching this just after we finished university. Yeah, it, was like, a bit, it was a bit like, oh gosh. No, was... I, I think that my parents weren't this psychotic. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that, so then moving on to the actual film, there was a lot of um, stylistic and symbolic things that were in the Ariaster's early work. Um, it, general, it definitely carried through. Definitely yeah. carried through. We'll talk about that a bit later, but just a quick plot synopsis of the film. Um, it opens um, with a funeral. Um, it's the funeral of the main character, Annie um, Tony Collette. Um, the funeral of her, her mother, who had been estranged for a while. Um, she's into spiritualism, so she doesn't really... The people that she doesn't go to the funeral, she doesn't really know, but they know that she worked with her mother in this sort of weird culty spiritual thing. It's not much given um, context of that. Um, you get introduced to the, the characters of the family. You have Charlie, who is the daughter, who is very, very... It's almost like she looks like... For, for anyone that's watched... Well, like I'm sure a lot of people will have seen the film by the time they're listening to this podcast, but for anyone that's watched the trailer at least... Charlie is the haunting little girl who is played by Millie Shapiro, who is a young actress who was on Broadway as Matilda for several yep. years. This is her first film. Yeah, but she, yeah, again, anyone that's seen the trailer will know that she's, um, vis like, visually, she's a very, very striking character. She's very creepy. Um, yep, I agree. Then we get, then you have Peter, who's the son, who also is quite a creepy son. He's sort of lost, the sort of lost teen. Yeah, dynamic. very detached, smokes a lot of weed. Smokes like, a lot of weed. Not really. That is a big plot point of the film. You know, not, not like a lost cause, but like he, he doesn't have the strongest relationship with the parents, especially the mother. Yep. And then you have the father, who we both thought was a fantastic in yeah, the film. Yeah, amazing performance. Yeah, really, really amazing performance. And he was sort of lost. He doesn't really... He's after the funeral. He kind of doesn't know what to do with his his family dynamic anymore. Yeah, you're yeah. kind of you're kind of from the offset. You're you know that there's a lot of shit that's going to kind of come up through the through the ground. Essentially, there's a lot of problems with this family. A lot of unspoken things, um, and you kind of 
throughout the film, you kind of get the impression that through the portrayal of the father from who's what's the name of the actor his name's Gabriel Byrne the only thing I recognised from his IMDB was he was in The Usual Suspects which is a classic classic and, crime film with and uh, if anyone's seen The Vikings he's Earl Haroldson in season one. Oh, you're right yeah he yes. is yeah 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 I have seen Vikings um but it, like from the onset of the film you kind of get the impression that he yeah he he almost feels powerless He he's trying to trying to save this family from kind of imploding, but he doesn't really know how to. He's quite helpless. Um, and that's kind of shown both through kind of his acting, but also through the kind of like the, the camera work. Mm. Like in this film, the cinematography is so striking. Like it's it, it, it it's not anything like the modern horror where like things cut, like scenes are very quickly edited and it rushes between different things. This film is all about long pauses, drawn out silences. Taking its time to establish the character connection. Exactly. But also even like setting up scenes, it's it will like slowly pan into rooms to see like what's going on, like whether it's the family having dinner at a table or whether it's the funeral. It's like slowly but surely panning in, allowing you to take in everything in the environment. Um, really, kind of, really like you're a fly on the wall. Yeah, and it kind of makes you want to look at this, look at the scene more and say, okay, what do I, what can I actually pick up here? Yeah, that's more than that's more than what's been said in the scene. It's quite nice. It, it gives you a sort of an unnerving sense throughout the whole, the whole. Well, ma- majority in the first act of the film, it gives you a really unnerving sense of what is to, to come. Definitely, and I think like a lot of the reviews that I saw were kind of saying that you know, be prepared. The first hour is a bit of a slog. It's quite a slow burn of a film. But I, horror is so subjective, and I'm sure that's something that we'll return to. But I, I sat there thinking. You know, it was late. It was Friday night. I'd, I'd been at work all week and I was knackered, but I really, really wanted to power through and watch this film. And I was thinking like, oh God, am I really going to struggle with this first hour? And I found myself and my interpretation of of what it was like. I found the first hour to be so incredibly intense, so unsettling. It went by like that. And I, I really do think that depends on what kind, what you kind of, A, what you want to take from the film mm-hmm. when you go into the cinema to sit down and watch it and B, what kind of really makes you click what really kind of unsettles you the most yeah I think it, that was the, also the same reaction I had and I think it's because it looks so into the family dynamic that you it set and it sets up the power characters so strongly in the first act um, that if you're a person expecting a straight up horror film your first hour is going to be disappointing because there's not a lot of jump scares no there's not a lot of there's not really many jump scares in the whole film no no like even the things that maybe would be used as jump scares by other like popular horror films unfold slowly and in quite a deliberate way with almost like the um like the sound effects and the music the compositions like leading it to be more and more terrifying the more you kind of stare at it yeah interesting note on the um the sound effects i thought throughout the film that the score was extraordinary yeah it was a beautiful man at meld and i looked up some brief things about it and the guy who did it was a guy called colin stetson and he is one of the touring band members with Arcade Fire. Really? Yeah, it's very odd. And he do, he's done a couple of films before. Nothing as big as Hereditary, um, the soundtracks for it. But he is a reedist. He plays, he's a, plays the bass saxophone and a lot of other reeded instruments. And as a clarinetist myself, when I, when, once I realised that, I was like, ah, I understand the soundtrack more because it's a lot of low bass, low clarinets, 
creating a discord and like and and the power of it. It's very loud and then very quiet at the same time, and they and it's really interesting how they yeah. he's created that. And you're right. Like I think so many horror films rely on kind of like the visual stuff to really shock you and and scare you. And while there are incredibly unpleasant things to look at in this film. It is the combination of the kind of sudden, sharp kind of electronic sounds or like you said, like the kind of miserable kind of saxophone screeches kind of things that go through it. It is, yeah, I found myself being drawn in by the kind of, well, dare I I say soundtrack. I don't know what the right word would be for it. Um, Yeah, original motion picture score. Yeah, but I found myself thinking about that a lot more through the film than I mean fuck I I I I'm sure that it had wonderful compositions but I can't remember any of the music really leading the story in it no you know what I no, mean no you're right like whereas I felt like it was a great meld and it was almost used as a device one of the only other things I could compare it to in that department would be almost on the same spectrum but directly on the other end the use of sound in horror was used so beautifully by A Quiet Place mm. which was out when did that come out that was in April wasn't it yeah Good, two or three months ago I still think that was one of the best films I've ever seen in a cinema it was so powerful to sit there and hear everyone trying to hold their breath in and not make a sound because the whole concept of the film obviously was make a sound and the creatures will come along and get you kind of thing and so much of the film is silent um and using like i remember watching kind of like interviews with john krasinski the lead star and also director of that film again a directorial horror debut yeah. ju- just like jordan peele with get out and ari aster with hereditary do you think that's um, where it's going oh, sorry to interrupt yeah. but do you think that's where it's going now is that people are going to get p- individual directors are going to start with horror and start and do things like this and then i think it's showing that you don't have to be an or maybe even that it's a bad thing if you're an established horror director who's maybe a bit jaded by the industry and like the kind of resigned to using the same techniques over and over again yeah i think there's something really exciting about in the last year kind of seeing some fresh blood um come in with ideas that aren't biased by what works what doesn't work what films have sold the most tickets in the past in this genre i definitely think that's something that's really cool and i i think that all three of those films and all three of those directors, they've set up movies that are tough acts to follow if they went down a horror route immediately after them. And I wonder whether those these three act, the directors will actually go and make a direct horror film as their next day, yeah, their, their next I feature film. Um, but that's something that's quite I'm quite curious to see. Like if they can strike gold twice then brilliant. Maybe we're seeing kind of like a change in the industry. I mean, I don't know if we're going to cover it, but in a few weeks, another Purge film comes out. And like, I could already see kind of like the look of like on your face of like, oh, are we really going to do that? Like, see, this is the thing. That will be what the fourth Purge film. How I how don't more, know. How many more times can you reinvent that format? I, I don't know if I can be asked to watch another one. No franchise horror. I can't think of any franchise horror recently that I've been excited for the next one to come out. No, Do you I know agree. what I mean? I agree. Like, I'm more excited for the next Fast and Furious, mate. Like, yeah, I can't wait. Too. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it comes back to a thing that Mark Commode used to say, um, that every director... If Will's, get... Will's favourite reviewer. Oh, I was about to say shout out to Mark Hard Commode. fanboy. Hard fanboy. <laughs> um, he, he says that every director, to get back to their roots and to understand how to make a film for the audience 
should go and make a really cheap, crappy um, B-movie horror. And that's how you do it. I think that, I think we've seen that throughout the last couple of years. Not B-movie, but on the same scale is that these horror films that are all about story, about nuance, about atmosphere, rather than about jump set, set jump scares or a extended lore of you and universe. Yeah. Um, I was just going to talk about, because um, we talked about Act One, but we haven't mentioned the big moment in Act One, which is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Charlie's, Charlie's demise. Yeah, so obviously, um, like, I think that's about... From from me looking at my watch in the cinema, because I was conscious of people saying the first hour was quite slow, and then I remember the whole sequence where Charlie has the allergic reaction and Peter tries to drive her to a hospital and then she leans out the window and her head gets lopped off by a post. Mm. That happens around 38 minutes into the film. Mm -hmm. So I was sat there when that happened and I was completely floored because like Millie Shapiro as a, as a young actress and it, like I would say that the majority of tickets for this film on opening weekend were secured by seeing her in the trailer. Yeah. She was the big pull to come and see this film. Like all of it looked interesting, right? But she was that like key ingredient that at least for me, I was like, that's that's fucking interesting. And like, I thought of they, the possession uh, narrative of her, which yeah. is, which it kind of is the first kind of part they of do, the film. They, they do a very good job of showing you a lot in the trailer to get you hooked. Maybe, again, maybe too much, like the state of trailers in modern cinema is something that could be at the whole episode of this podcast I if, mean, you, if it wanted. Jurassic World last week, just look at that. It's, yeah, well, completely. That's That ruins the whole film, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, not that you need to go and see it. Um, you, just listen to our podcast <laughs> out now. <laughs> um, but... It, it it pulls you in with her character and it's done with her, like in, in kind of physical incarnation of the character. It's done with her in about 40 minutes of the film. And I really respected them for that because it completely floored me. I had no idea that that was something that was going to happen. I thought that this little girl was going to be the creepy one that kind of stays the main plot point throughout the yep. film. And she doesn't. And it's very sudden. And it gives another reason for the family to be grieving rather than just the grandmother who was kind of had a difficult relationship with Annie, the mum and all this kind of stuff. So it wasn't really so much a loss more as it was kind of a relief. Um, but like losing a 14 year old daughter, horrendous Awful. in any circumstance. And it like it does that classic panning of the camera and it pans into the bedroom where like the mum is like Annie is like screaming on the floor. And she I, something that really got me was she, she says something like I like she's like wailing like I just want to die. I just want to die. And it, it was horrid. Yeah. And like Steve, the father is consoling her. Peter's just standing and then, outside. And then Pete, yeah. Peter's kind of like standing outside the bedroom. Um, and it kind of like it very quickly clicks in that whole grief sequence. It very quickly clicks to a shot of the road where the accident happened. And it's just her head being covered in ants. Oh, oh, ants. I thought, ants. It was like ants crawling yeah. all over her head. And it like, it was that kind of technique. It, it was that like, it's showing you something incredibly unsettling, but it's not doing it in that classic, like jump scare horror way. Like it could have shown you her being decapitated. If this was a Final Destination film, it would have reveled in doing that. It would yep. have reveled in making you gross out and feel uncomfortable. But twisting that knife slowly but surely over a whole sequence of semi-seeing the accident happen, seeing Peter freak out in the car, drive home, abandon the car with her headless body in it outside, try and go to bed, and then it cuts to the Peter in the morning with his eyes still open in bed as you hear Annie leave the house and then discover the car and the body. And then it cuts to all the stuff we I, I just mentioned. 
that for me, that six, probably about five or six minutes, that was 10 times, 100 times more impactful than it would have been to actually show Charlie's head getting knocked off. Yeah, with a big crescendo in the score. Yeah, I think that scene where um, Peter is in the car, as you just mentioned, is really haunting where he's just looking straight ahead. He can't stop looking straight ahead. And then he looks up to his... Um, rear view mirror and then goes back because he can't look at what's Because he can't happened. see it. And you think like, oh fuck, you're going to see this train wreck of a body. You're going to see the head in the rear view mirror but it doesn't show you. No. And and that is that is a brilliant way of describing how it keeps you in, while being a fly on the wall in terms of filming, it keeps you, it doesn't give you anything that the characters aren't experiencing. Yeah. It's not one of those films where you know all this stuff that's going to happen that the characters don't. You are there exploring it with them. Yeah, I agree. You don't get any more than they do. You find everything out, any twist or turn in the story, you find it out by them discovering it. And I really like that. Yeah, I like that as a lot. And then the the next part of the film goes into more, um, so Annie meets Joan, who is who was supposed to be at the first group counselling thing. I looked at a snapshot of it. She's not at the first group counselling session, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, she Joan um, is a person who has supposedly lost her grandson, um, and so they bond over that and it's a way that Annie can have grief and they introduce her to the concept of seances, which... Um, yeah, so that's where, like, for anyone that's seen the film, that's where kind of the second half of it goes. It's like Tony like Tony Collette's character, Annie, becomes, through this friend Joan, obsessed with the idea of the family trying to contact Charlie through, like, a cup on a table and using, like, her old her old sketchbook as a way of contacting her. Which then turns and her I, insane. I don't know about you... I'm not a big fan of supernatural stuff. I just don't find it particularly gripping. Um, and so when I kind of saw it going down that route, and that was about around the hour mark when kind of some reviewers have said things start to pick up, I was thinking for me, oh, is this winding down a bit? Because I thought like, how many times is that spirits in the room moving a Ouija board, that kind of thing? How many times has that been done? Yeah. I'm not interested in this. And then they actually do it. And they have like a seance scene with Joni, the woman. And then you have Annie kind of bringing it home and doing a seance at night with Peter and Steve, the husband. And it's fucking terrifying. Yeah, it's really like it scary. is that that to its credit, I I think that some of the special effects or some of the editing of like the physical moments of horror in this film weren't that great. I think that Ariaster is terrific at this suspenseful storytelling, character-driven narrative. But when it come came to the more kind of like physical action, uh, dare I say, action sequences, they're not really. But yeah. I meant like the more action-heavy moments of the plot, the big scares, the big almost, scares. Yeah. yeah, I didn't think he was that great. No, but the only thing, and I, I kind of felt that some of the effect was lost for me. But those two seance sequences, I thought, were terrific. They and mainly really due to good. the acting of both Tony Collette and the, the husband. Do you think she could get an Oscar nomination for this I role? I was going to say, yeah, I think, I. is it too early? I I always think this with films, because I always think... Because we're far off from We are very far season. off. This might but be forgotten should, about. Like, this is, again, another, another episode of the podcast worthy, but like, should that matter? No, it shouldn't matter. Um, I get frustrated with films that are better but because a film is brought out in January it's going to get nominated for an Oscar yeah um I don't I think in my head if there's going to be an, an Oscar nomination for horror 
I think he'll go to the quiet place, and I think he'll go to Krasowski or Blunt, Emily Blunt. Yeah, so so I agree. I think that um, in terms of best director, I think either Ari Aster or John Krasinski deserves a nomination, one hundred percent. I, I maybe other people don't see as much in the character as as me, but I, I like I was saying earlier, I really like um, the actor that played the husband, Gabriel Byrne. I thought that he was terrific. I thought that the kind of like the detached, helpless nature of the character was really great, but also the way the filmography, like the the way they were kind of like more withdrawn with his scenes. And like so much of this film, even if it's fly on the wall, is fly on the wall of Peter and Annie mm. and Charlie in the first 40 minutes. And the dad is, and the dad the is kind of, he, he's made to kind of feel second rate which is exactly how he, I think he is in the family dynamic. His voice is kind of not really there. No one really listens to him. There's a huge ongoing feud throughout the film between Peter and Annie. And no one really um, know what, knows what he does as well. Like we know that Annie is a, Annie paints miniatures and we know and we know that and we know what Peter's happening at school. We don't know what he's doing day to day. But yeah. We just see him being there for the he's family. Not, he's not anywhere near as fleshed out as Peter and Annie but I think that's a deliberate technique. The point, yeah. And I and that is, yeah, 100 percent that's the point. No one is stopping to think about how Steve feels about anything. And there's nothing, there's no moment more um that shows that more than I think my favorite scene in the film, which is after Charlie has died, they have a, like a, a sit-down meal at the dinner table in the family house, and everything kind of comes out basically. And Annie and Peter, the son, start fighting. And she says this brilliant line. She says, like, she's kind of shouting and ranting, like, don't you speak speak to me like that. I'm your mother. I do all this stuff for you. And all you do is look at me with that face on your face. And I thought that was so chilling. Like, I really didn't like it when she said that. And you see in that, like, you know, pretty much everyone who has married parents will have seen an argument at the dinner table where potentially maybe you as a son or a daughter is arguing with your mum and the dad doesn't know where he lies in this argument. And it was so brilliantly done. And you kind of watch the character of Steve go through every emotion possible for a husband and a father in that kind of real-life family situation. It's like it starts, the argument starts off and he's kind of, you can tell he's sort of on the mother's side and he doesn't want Peter to raise his voice kind of thing, but he doesn't say anything. And then Annie starts going in and saying like this face on your face stuff and all of that. And he kind of looks to Peter and kind of feels sympathy for him. He feels kind of sorry for him. He doesn't really know if he should intervene. And then before he's mustered the courage to intervene, Peter then fucking goes in back at the mum. Yeah, saying it's it's actually more her fault that Charlie's dead because Charlie forced her to go to the park. Part, um, that Annie forced Charlie to go to the party with Peter. Pete they're, didn't yeah, want they're, to, etc. They're arguing over the who's to blame for Charlie's death. And when Peter kind of fights back, the dad kind of you can see, and, and this is all done with facial expressions. And this is why I love that bit so much. And it's maybe one of the only moments where he really like the camera is fully placed on him for a longer period of time, and you can tell that he's kind of just about to kind of stand up for his son, and then doesn't because he's like oh great well now he's kind of got in it now and nothing I say is going to help the yeah. situation and then the like Annie storms out and it's got this kind of panned out shot of Peter and Steve still sat at the dinner table and Steve kind of like sort of pats Peter's hands 
it's like he, so he doesn't want to fully console him and he doesn't want to say anything because he doesn't want to take sides but or he's like I feel again. for you kind of thing and like pats him I, I just thought that was terrific and I really I don't know whether he would deserve a best supporting actor nomination um, but I just resonated with his character so much I thought he was so interesting but Tony Collette like absolute tour de force amazing like you can pick amazing. out like there there are for me there are weaknesses with this film I think towards the end like I don't think Ari Aster has a great command of like the action sequences like we said like uh, there's a bit towards the end where Steve catches on fire and I thought it was really cheesy. It looked very CGI. That was the only thing in the film that didn't look natural. It looked, it really, looked really bad. Yeah. And like there's a bit where Peter jumps out of the window and it's just it doesn't feel ah, like it's jump. Doesn't feel like it's edited right. And then you really hated what was the bit that you really didn't like at the well, end? I, um it's Annie floating up to the treehouse. Yeah, headless Annie floating up to the treehouse in the last five minutes. Of? And Princess Leia, Last yeah. Jedi. It, it, it set off all my alarm bells for Last people, Jedi. People again. laughed. People laughed in the cinema last night when we watched that. Um, yeah, same with my viewing. Yeah, I, I, but but throughout it, Tony Collette, and I've not seen, I don't think I've seen her in anything else. I know she was in The Sixth Sense. She's in About um, a Boy, which she got a couple of nominations for. Oh, really? For. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then she did a, she's won Emmys for, I think, a show called United States of Tara. Right. I'm not sure. I don't think I've watched her in pretty much anything, which is really bad. Um, but I know she's like, she gets those acting roles that are not not mainstream enough that she gets completely lauded but she still does interesting nuanced stuff and throughout and has a, had a career of it. Yeah. But I think this this could be worthy of a nomination. I think it really is a powerful, powerful performance um, because she goes from like, she goes, she she does insane rather in, rather just than just being an insane um, horror stereotype. She, it's all of her insanity in the later half of the film is nuanced by the stuff that's come before. And it's really and grounded. Like you kind of, you sit there and you think like, and, and the I'm, more, I'm the, of course you're this emotional. Yeah. The more and more bizarre the plot gets, even if like some people might kind of take aim at that. Like me personally, I thought it kind of, it got, it didn't unfold in the way you were expecting. Suspenseful, like mind fuck way that I thought it was going to. But towards the end of the film, even right up to the end, you're kind of thinking like, nothing Annie's doing is like typical horror. Like I suppose like with Jurassic Park last, last week, we were complaining about the things the characters were doing yeah, and like making stupid decisions, which pull you out of the film as a viewer. Cause you think like, no, come on. Like the majority of people wouldn't act in this way in this moment. And I think that's a big problem with horror. So like the strangers pray at night film that I said, I watched a few months ago, just yes. like being stalked by three creep creepy guys the characters make the stupidest fucking decisions. They don't do what you would do in real life. And even if that one, because it's just a straight, like a straight edge serial killer stalking film, it's got nothing supernatural in it like this. I found that less realistic than I did this film hereditary. Yeah. Because even as it gets more and more mad towards the end, everything Tony Collette's character Annie is doing, you feel like you would probably do as a distraught mother in that environment your, yourself mm. I think the same goes for um, Steve as well um, played by Gabriel Byrne and I think Pete, I think Peter there are some moments where he does do things a bit wrong Peter's an up and coming actor so I'll give him some leeway considering he had some incredibly difficult scenes to film specifically the scene where he, he gets kind of possessed and smashes his head on the desk in class 
And in the trailer, it shows that, but it doesn't show the extent of it. Like he kind of like contorts his whole body before it happens. And I don't know how they filmed it. I don't know if he had help with it or if it was just him doing it himself, but it, it kind of looks like he's having a stroke. It's and it's 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 really really unnerving. It's probably the bit that bothered me the most in the film. I, I also um, like the the reaction after it when he snaps out of it on the desk and he's just and on he's the like floor. screaming and the whole class is there like they don't know what to do. I thought that was terrific. So I'm willing to overlook some issues with bits of his acting. Yeah. Like for example, there's a bit where he's like crying into Steve's arms after the seance with Annie, and I thought his sobs were really like cringy like I didn't think it felt like he was actually really crying I can't or that, like yeah. yeah just odd bits and bobs but like overall I thought he was amazing as well um, can I talk about my big thing with the film mate go I, on because on. in the second act of the film I started struggling more than Jake did I've, give, I've given it a lot of praise in this in this review so far but I do have a bit of problems with um, the fact that there is so much symbolism and etc um, throughout the film um, and I felt like it didn't lead to the conclusion that I was expecting or that I wanted as a, I wanted something to be more character impactful to, based on the relationship between the mother and son and it kind of turned into a story about being a, being a grand the, the grandmother's dynamic and something about spiritualism and King Paimon and all that kind of stuff um, the King Paimon reference um, is the end, end of the thing it's the it's the thing that's possessing. Yeah, that the, the entity that the grandmother's satanic cult yep. kind of wanted to bring through and it possesses Charlie from an early age and I think we watched kind of like an explained video on this before recording and it's roughly the idea is something along the lines of Paimon needs to be passed down through a family, through the women, but needs a male host so obviously in the climax of the film, it ends up with Peter being possessed by Paymon and that's kind of how the film cuts out. Yeah. But I would have, I was, I, after watching that video that explains a lot of the Easter eggs that I didn't, that I needed to revisit, I enjoyed it and I, I thought actually, okay, the film has made a decent effort from start to finish to suggest stuff in the in the beginning to lead to the film. I kind of think there's a problem in, on, in waiting of some of yeah. the stuff. And waiting in terms of like, some 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 moments in Easter eggs were more important, but then didn't lead to anything. Yeah, no, I know what if you that mean. makes sense. Some some Whereas, things kind of happened without having any real impact, and then were never addressed again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. like I, what was the bit that really bothered me? Oh yeah, it's like maybe not symbolism, but after Charlie's death, and obviously she was having the allergic reaction where she was choking and couldn't breathe. There's a bit where Peter, weeks later, is smoking weed under the bleachers at school with his mates. And he starts choking. He starts having like an allergic reaction. I exactly and I thought like, oh, fuck, this bit's going to get really creepy. And then it just it just cuts to him cycling home from school at night. Yeah. And it's like, I, it kind of, that bit of editing kind of felt like, oh, they tried to like bring up this interesting idea of maybe like the spirit kind of fucking with him and making him feel like his sister felt. But then it never followed through, so maybe they shot more for that. Yeah, I agree. And I, was... I felt I felt that about some of the symbolism stuff, like the writing on the wall and stuff like that. Like I'm sure if we watch more explained videos, they would be able to get down to it. But for me, it wasn't clear enough to actually have any use in. Like they they were they were more obviously shown in the film than just being Easter eggs. Yep. But then they weren't clearly explained enough to really have any value to the average moviegoer. I agree with that. So like there were more there were more kind of 
small specific things that say in this YouTube explain video we watched mentioned that I just had no idea about. I didn't even see. Exactly. And yes, like there is a great attention to detail. There is stuff for people that want to go and figure that thing out. But I just felt like some of that symbolic stuff. It didn't pay off. It didn't pay off. And it was kind of given too much screen time. Like sometimes the camera camera would really linger on these things. And you're thinking, what does this mean? What and does this and it, doesn't, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really surmount to anything much. The problems, I, the, the problems I saw that most in was the blue light that constantly appeared through the film. So there was this blue light that is essentially showing Peter um, to to the classroom and to different places that kind of like it's, it's like the sort of blue light that beckons him to be a thing and in the video we watched earlier there was a theory that it, that's based on um, the King Paimon's essence that can finally go into Peter at the end um, A I thought the blue the, uh, the idea of this weird blue light was almost like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or like a Star Trek film it wasn't really spiritual and etc and that, that's fine but the other thing is just it just kept on appearing with no Problems and then the crosses on the eyes as well in the in the notebook that Charlie uh, draws pictures and in the seance you see these pictures of Peter with crosses over his eyes. I had no idea what that. I, I assume that means Peter's going to go. But yeah, I but, no but, yeah, but I, I yeah I struggle with that as well because Peter the whole purpose of Peter was he was going to he becomes a vessel. Not really. so like crossing out the eyes kind of infers that you're going to kill him off. Exactly. And I don't know, I, well, I suppose maybe you could say that the essence of Peter is killed off and he just becomes a vessel, but like it was physical drawings of his physical body, which is what was wanted by King Paimon or exactly. Paimon or whatever. Exactly. Can I, can I mention, before we go on to Critic Quote Awards, I had not so much an issue with the symbolism, but relating to kind of popular culture I think there's something that this film tried to do that kind of fell on its own sword for some audiences so one of the techniques which I think is quite effective and it is quite intense is that the character of Charlie has this weird kind of thing that she does which is like a clucking sound it's like um, and she does that throughout the film and it kind of, even when she's gone, the characters kind of hear it every now and then. And it, it does make you jump. I, I'd say it's maybe one of the only jump scares in the film. Yeah. Um, and I read into it and uh, Millie Shapiro, the actress that plays her, explained how and why she did it. And she kind of said, like, I have a quote here. It said that she, Shapiro explained how she used the Stella Adler acting method to tap into an animal's characteristic in order to bring her character to life. Um, specifically, Shapiro said she chose a turtle for her outer animal since her character likes to go inside herself and a snake as her inner animal since they're usually seen as evil but they're also misunderstood. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, I haven't read a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff but it was really cool to hear about how that clucking kind of came around. And that is kind of, if, if, if you've kind of seen turtles before, that is kind of the sound yeah, that they do make. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was a nice touch. It, was, it sounded like she really, really was invested in the character and it helped her portrayal. However, sometime around January this year, there was a meme that came out. And it was, I don't, like, you're, you're familiar with it, aren't you? Is the, the Ugandan Knuckles thing. So yeah. this is this was a meme that came out where it was like um, a PlayStation 4 like virtual reality chat room where you can kind of create any kind of avatar like character that you want for yourself and go and talk to other people online. And I don't know how it happened, but it was like a bunch of people all created this weird avatar themselves of Knuckles, the character from the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise, 
but kind of he looks all weird and distorted um and he has they all basically went into this chat room about 15 of them and they all started talking in this ugandan accent and they go around i can't i like i couldn't tell for the life of me it was never kind of discussed in this way it was something that was very popular and very well known but i couldn't tell whether it was quite racist or not but they kind of they all talk in that voice of like we must find the queen we must go and find the queen she is our leader and it's like the half an hour video where they go around like hassling other people online basically and they all do this group noise together which is the clucking it's like and for me and i know for at least three or four other people in the showing that i was in on friday night when charlie's character starts doing the clucking in the film some people instantaneously were reminded of that meme and it went back to it for them and they found it hilarious because when she first started doing it i burst out laughing and a few other people in the cinema burst out laughing. And then kind of later on into the film, like people would be doing it. So like you'd hear like, there, it wouldn't even be a moment where Charlie's on screen and people would be like. And I looked it up and apparently there's been a big issue with it. What, throughout Yeah, throughout yeah, like, like throughout screenings, they've kind of like, I think the cast and crew have kind of said like, oh, please don't cluck in the cinema because it really ruins the dramatic effect of the film. Oh, no. And I don't think, it, I've like, I've, I've looked through it because I wanted to see if anyone had made the link. And as far as I'm aware, like, almost definitely on Twitter, someone's made the link. But I couldn't find any news outlet, even this cast and crew warning thing that was like realising that it's got something to do with that meme. And for me throughout the film like I'd had a couple of beers and I've had a bit silly and it was a shame because I didn't I wasn't drawn in by that character yeah. trait as much as most people would be no I um, get that I get that but I suppose that's I don't know if that's really a valid criticism or just kind of like a little pernickety thing um shall we do our critic quote awards my friend yeah I think that's I think that this is the time this is um, where- I don't want to sing. Still, don't have a jingle again because we've done it. We've we, done it we don't. Now. We, still don't, we have don't have it. Um, I, should we try and set ourselves a challenge? Whether we try and, oh, God forbid, whether we try and make something musical, <laughs> or or whether we try and persuade someone to do it. For I mean, you us. play the drums, I play the clarinet. We can make something weird and wonderful. Screechy, surely. yeah, yeah. Sure, like, screechy in the way it'd be like the us. Hereditary Two soundtrack. <laughs> um, yeah, well, exactly. I think we should try and set ourselves a target of having one done by August. Yep. So hopefully, first episode in August, I don't know what week that will be, we will um, we'll have a jingle. That makes sense. Um, um, I was just going to say on top of these things, normally we do the best description of the film, the most savage, and the funniest quote from Rotten Tomatoes. Wasn't a lot of funny quotes from Rotten Tomatoes No, no, no one was um, kind of making jokes with no. this film. I so think probably because s- it wasn't, there were like reviewers that didn't like it, but they didn't, they didn't hate it so much that they wanted to like shred it. Exactly. So... Yeah, nothing, nothing like Jurassic World or what was the solo one? Um, a quarterly earnings report in a yeah. le- in leather boots and a white shirt or something. Yeah, I mean, I mean, nothing. There's nothing as strong as that here. So instead, we've done the creepiest quote. Um, so yeah. So what did you have for best description? For best film? description of the film, in terms of what I thought of it, I have a quote from Anne Hornaday from the Washington Post. And she said, hereditary is staged, photographed and acted so brilliantly and brings up issues of motherhood, resentment and creativity with such subtlety that it is tempting to overlook its alternately astonishing and laughable excesses. Nice. And I really like that because I... I did think this film was fantastic. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was new. I also thought it took like the same supernatural kind of stuff that I didn't really care about and made me more invested in it. 
But I do think that there were weaknesses in some of the acting. I didn't think that it unfolded in a way that I thought was as dramatic as it could have been. No. So yeah, no, I thought some of it was a bit laughable. No, I get that. So mine is on a different vein as well. I I agree with Jake on that. Um, but I've talked this description is from Barry Hertz in the Globe and Mail and talks about more the scenic and the shot composition of the film, which I really like. Yeah. Because um, it says, no shot seems wasted. The editing is sturdy and linear. The editing, sorry, the editing is sturdy and linear rebuke to the quick cut madness that's infected so many recent genre films. <coughs> and the sound and set design are meticulous and spare. Um, I, spare, yeah. Spare, yeah. So true. I really like that. I really, I think it really cuts the end of the film. It's really ambitious, this film, in terms of what it tries to do with horror. And it's because it's so... Like it's it's so um, da- what's the word dour dour yeah, yeah. we go with that it's it is it's it's just like it's been edited edited down even though there's long edits it's a film where they don't need anything else it's just the house and and there's no it's, big mini- it's minimalist things. it's another example of like a quiet place did doing so much with so little and really kind of cutting out all the excess of modern horror films. And taking it back to the drawing board and being like, what do we do with the core elements of film, sound, cinematography, uh, character development? What do we do to make these core elements better rather than give it loads of bells and whistles? Exactly, exactly, yes. Um, For most savage quote or opinion from a critic, I have one from James Berardinelli of Real Views. Do you like him? You um, saw me smile. We have the same. We have the same. Oh, we have the same we savage. Have the same. All right, well, maybe, maybe like you'd also agree there wasn't a lot of savagery. No, um, I, that, that was that's the thing. It's very difficult to find a really bad review. Of I this. think I think that's because pretty much every re- reviewer would give it at least a five out of ten, and it's a directorial debut. So I don't think I think a lot of reviewers look at this as like this guy's got a lot of promise. He's got a lot to come. Why be let's cruel? Not, let's, yeah, why be cruel? Why be cruel? Um, all right, well, do you want to read it? Or should I, go on, you read it. Do you want to read half and half? No, I'm joking. Um, no, mate. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> James Burns LA from Real Views. Um, it's a poorly constructed endings can leave an unpleasant aftertaste, even for moves that are otherwise mostly solid. That's the case here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I think it, it does kind of lose itself a little bit. It doesn't wrap up in the way I was hoping. No, um, I, I, I would agree with that quote, but I also... I, that's not particularly harsh. I think it just talks about the end. No, of the I think it's it's echoing the same things the other two have just said, but in yeah, a slightly more so. blunt yeah. way. Um, creepiest description. Um, so I've got one from Jordan Raup at the film stage. Right, well, I don't have that one as well, so we're all good. <laughs> all right, good, good, good. Um, he said, hereditary burrows deep in the brain, waiting to scare you again the next time you turn the lights off or sit down for a family meal. Oh, Dear, my heart did start pounding there. That was, yeah, I know that was very, very scary. Mine's a bit less creepy, but I, I think it's just the way. I just, it's, yeah, it kind of works. Uh, it's Brian Truitt from USA Today, and he said a visceral, a visceral experience so deeply unsettling that you don't feel right afterward. Dirty even, so unclean that the church visit wouldn't be out of the question. <laughs> What odd thing to say at the end? What the odd thing to say? So clean, unclean that a church visit wouldn't be out the question. That's really creepy. Well, yeah, it is. It, it's creepy, but not in the, not in like a spooky way. It's creepy. And just what an odd thing to say. It's like a bit of a dig at the Church of England there. Yeah, but yeah, bit, well, a bit unnecessary. But... USA Today, mate. Not church of England. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, 
Yeah, what do you think uh, in terms of your rating? In terms of rating. Mm. So, all right, so obviously a few times, you haven't seen A Quiet Place, but I've kind of compared it to that with respect to the fact that it's a family-driven narrative. It's a new directorial debut horror film that does a lot with quite little. When I watched A Quiet Place, I kind of gave it my own mental rating of 9 out of 10. I thought it was exemplary. I thought it was so good that I've seen it three times. Um, and it, it it does yeah they're very different films but they also share quite a lot of similarities. I think that Hereditary was just a little bit more convoluted, was a little bit less polished, but was more ambitious. Yep. So I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Nice. I can understand that. I am going to go for a seven point five because I think that. The film, the things in the film that were right were so right that that they were like nine out of ten. Yeah, but the thing I, that yeah, I, yeah, yeah, nine out of ten, ten out of ten. I remember early on in the film thinking this is quite possibly the best horror film I've yeah. ever seen, and then and it slowly but surely it didn't get so like it didn't frustrate me so much that I disliked it, but it it for me it let itself it, it had so much potential and it let itself down a little bit. Yeah, just a bit. Um, yeah, I think that the things that the, the things that were problematic were not so problematic that I'm going to give them a three and four. They were sort of five, six. But the when they got it right, like Charlie's death, it was so powerful. And that's why I gave it a 7.5. Yeah. yeah, there we go. So that is like, we're four weeks in now to the 52-week film th- project. And best. that is our highest rated film. We actually, we, I, we said this a couple of days ago, we need to keep a track of, yeah. uh, unless we want to go back and listen to all of our podcasts, we need to keep a track of what we're rated films. Yeah. And hopefully we can kind of create some kind of tally on Facebook and people can kind of interact with that and see whether they agree, disagree. Um, but if I remember rightly, that is our highest rated film so far. So that comes next. So that is the, like, the best film of the last month that we've covered. Yes. Solo was the second best. Uh, Batman Ninja was pretty good. And then Jurassic Park, we kind of, we struggled with. Yeah. Um, next week, I think we're going to cover, unless you've got another idea, um, Ocean's 8. I'm very excited about this because Ocean's 11, but it's already 12, done. It's already done great at the box office. Yeah. For I've America. Yeah. From, I've, I don't know how it's going to do over here, but Ocean's 11, 12 and 13, I, I would say are my most watched films. Just really? I, I, had, I, I had know that. First two on my VHS and the last one on DVD. And I watched nice. them constantly for years. I need to rewatch yeah, them. Yeah, they're great. I remember the first one quite well yep. with Andy Garcia playing the casino. Yeah. 12 and 13 are worse films, but they are also very, very... We'll talk about this next week, but very excited. Yeah, I, I'm really excited. I've, I've watched clips of, uh, of some of the cast on the Graham Norton show, which is my favourite talk show of all time. Um, it's and just so good. They, they've got... They've got a lot of chemistry. They're very interesting. They're very funny women. Um, and it, in the US, it's been the highest opening of an Oceans film, yep. which is really, really cool. I also want Rihanna um, to do, have a better acting role in her than Battleship. Or in Valerian. Or in Valerian. Oh, God. Like, I just wanted to, I just want to, because she's acted now in a couple of films. I'm like, come and on, she's Rihanna. not awful. She's not, not awful. She's not Cara Delevingne awful. Oh, dear me. But let's save this shit. For next, next week. week. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, thank you very much. As always, please make sure you like and subscribe. If you have been listening to a few of them, we'd love to know what you think. Um, shoot us an email at 52weekfilmproject at gmail.com or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatnot. 
Um, we're also being quite active with our Instagram recently. Yeah, we and just hit 100 Twitter. followers, actually. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, 100 very followers cool. for a new podcast is very exciting. So thank you all for following us yeah. and keeping up. And um, I think that's everything. I think that's everything. So we'll see you next week. See you next week. Thank you very much.